Welcome to September's JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month, we're looking at neurosurgical procedures for psychiatric illness and how these should be carried out safely and ethically. Bart Nuttin, from the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Leuven, talked me through the guidelines he's put together with international psychiatric and neurosurgical societies. The aim was to write a pragmatic set of guidelines, which take into account the cultural and social differences in healthcare worldwide. Here's Dr. Nuttin on the highlights. Okay, well, we were looking at neurosurgical procedures for psychiatric disorders in general. So all kind of uh, neurosurgical procedures uh, that are still being performed today and that one is trying to develop and then all kind of uh, psychiatric disorders which may be an indication for that kind of uh, procedures. Now, in the past, there was the lobotomy that is not being performed anymore, so we did not discuss that. But then after lobotomy, there came lesioning procedures. This means one uh, makes a small burn wound in uh, the brain or another way to damage a small area of uh, the brain like a radio surgery. So all these lesioning procedures are taken on one side and then another type of uh, procedures is deep brain stimulation which is being developed where electrodes are implanted in the brain. And furthermore, we also briefly talk about new types uh, that one is developing experimentally. The second part of your question was, which kind of psychiatric disorders uh, were we looking at? Hmm. Well, we were looking, first of all, at OCD, eh, obsessive compulsive disorder, for which lesion procedures and the brain stimulation procedures are being performed, but also at major depression and some other indications which are more rarely uh, being performed or being investigated, let's say, like eating disorders or schizophrenia and so forth. Yeah. And and why did you feel that now was a a good time to to look at this area of research? Why did you feel that there was a need for, for these guidelines? Well, these are not the first guidelines. Actually, in 2002, we published a paper in neurosurgery, just a one-page paper, guidelines, neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders, and this was focusing on deep brain stimulation. And since then, there are several guidelines published. However, Belgium is not United States, Mm. it's not Africa, it's not China. So there are clearly differences in culture, differences in religion, differences in how medicine is being practiced. And the question is, why why do you really need to regulate these kind of procedures, uh, neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders? Well, this is not an operation for appendicitis. It is an operation to change human behavior in severely suffering patients. Changing behavior, we do all the time, like when we're talking to each other now, we change our behavior, Mm. Uh, or when you give a drug like an antipsychotic or an antidepressant. However, when we talk about a neurosurgical procedure, uh, intervening in the brain with surgery to change human behavior, this is something very delicate and 
most people are uh, very sensitive that this is being done for good reasons i would say mm. so we really have to know what we are doing we have to we being the peers being the psychiatrists the psychologists the neurosurgeons people from medical ethics we need to clearly define what can be done and what cannot be done and i already told you that there are different guidelines available but taking into account all these cultural uh, differences, we wanted to extract the most essential parts. Moving on to what's actually in the guidelines and, and what you're recommending, um, tell, me, tell me a bit about the, the evidence for the, the procedures that you looked at. I mean, are, are they well supported? The consensus of guidelines did not focus on the level of evidence of all the papers. Actually, the World Society of Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery, this was one effort, writing those guidelines. The second effort we are doing at this moment is looking at all the evidence available in the literature. But we can already say that um, the publications on lesioning procedures are usually not double-blind, randomized clinical trials, Mm. because it's very hard to do this kind of research when you make a lesion and performing SAM surgery is not something everybody accepts and for deep brain stimulation this is too recent and not many papers have been published on this okay and uh, so we still think that this is investigational and and what about the you discuss the, the the kind of the, the ethical side of of doing these these procedures and um, explaining risk to patients and and making sure that they're in the right place to give consent. So could you tell me about the recommendations that you make with regard to these things? Okay, uh, of course I will not go into details. Then you have to read the paper. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I give you one example. Um, if you have a normal memory. Uh, and I would be able to develop a uh, neurosurgical procedure to improve your memory, then you would be very happy because then you can remember many things Mm. and you can get very high in society because you just have to turn over the pages of your books and you you know everything. Uh, However, when your neighbor sees that, then your neighbor will also like that kind of surgery. So you are morally forcing your neighbor to have that kind of surgery. But also the associated risks with this kind of surgery. So if this kind of thing would happen, then society would have to intervene. It's just like doping in sports. Everybody wants to win the race. But if one if one starts to take doping, everybody needs to take doping, but there are side effects. And then society needs to intervene to prevent that people take doping. Mm. So that's what we try to do also in in the consensus. We say this is something which can be done in people that are suffering very severely and where other psychiatric treatments like pharmacotherapy, behavioral therapy, and some disorders, for some disorders, uh, electroconvulsion therapy, and so on, when all this does not work, uh, and when there is a committee of neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders that thinks 
that the patient might benefit, well, then one can go. Of course, there needs to be informed consent. But one cannot do this as a preventive measure at this moment, uh, and one cannot do this in normal people that are not suffering. Okay, so it should be a kind of a last resort, if you will. It's a last resort in severely suffering patients. That's well formulated. Okay. And, and what, I mean, if patients are severely suffering, then obviously that there is problems in, in terms of who is able to, to, to give consent and explaining the risks. Did you, did you have any recommendations here? When you think about informed consent, the patient needs to be able to give informed consent and uh, some psychiatric disorders uh, make that informed consent problematic. I just give you an example. When I see a patient with major depression, uh, then I can explain uh, the surgery, I can explain the advantages and the possible risks and the possible uh, alternatives. But uh, while I'm explaining this to the patient, the patient tells me, please doctor, just do the surgery. I'm not interested in all these possible side effects. You need to do this. So this is different than an obsessive-compulsive disorder patient uh, who usually does take the time to understand the possible risks and so forth. So one really needs to think about the different disorders and the informed consent possibilities. We go a bit further in detail uh, into that problem in uh, the paper. Okay, great. So listeners can, um, can go away and have a look at that. And um, you mentioned that it should be a, a, a team that decides if someone should be having these kinds of procedures. Who would that be? Who would be beyond that team? I, I, I think there are uh, some differences depending from centre to centre here. But in general, we can say that it needs to be psychiatry driven. They make the diagnosis. They follow the patient's. They have um, treated the patients with different ways, pharmacotherapy, behavioral therapy, and so forth. Then you, of course, need a neurosurgeon to do the operation. And those people need to act in a team. They have to be able to talk to each other. They have to understand uh, each other. And there uh, can be psychologists that uh, do uh, neuropsychological testing. And... um, one can also think about a person who knows about medical ethics. Um, of course, at this stage, most of these kind of surgeries are are being performed in a way where the IRB, uh, as far as the United States is involved, uh, is involved, and in um, Europe, it's medical ethics committees because these are research protocols. So those people, we think, have to be in that committee to decide who is a candidate. Why do we think so? Well, first of all, out of our experience, but also Luz Gabriels, who is a psychiatrist uh, from Belgium, she made a questionnaire and uh, she gave that to 80 psychiatrists in Belgium. And one of the questions there was, what do you think if the, the patient together with the neurosurgeon sit together and think uh, the patient is desperately ill, the diagnosis is clear, 
can they decide for such kind of surgery? And there was only one person who said yes. All the rest said no. But then the question was, what do you think? If a psychiatrist is sitting together with the patient, can they decide for surgery? And almost everybody said no. And then the question was, what do you think? If there's a committee of neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders, neurosurgeons, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, people from medical ethics committees, if they sit together and discuss every patient at length, can they decide for such surgery? And then uh, everybody said yes. Right. Okay. So, so you, your suggestion is that it really should be a, you know, a big multidisciplinary team that's um, that's making these decisions. And I mean, are there any typical ethical pitfalls that you've seen with regard to, um, you know, to, to to giving people these kind of interventions? Are there any areas that um, that clinicians should be really aware of and thinking about? Well, I think uh, one should be careful to think that certain parts of neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders are already routine surgery. Mm. There are some countries, even Belgium, where neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders, at least some part of it, is being routinely performed, like bilateral anterior capsulotomy for obsessive compulsive disorder. And this goes through the Committee of Neurosurgery for Psychiatric Disorders, but they don't ask that this is being done in research manner. Yeah. This can be routine surgery. In Belgium, I mean, that's how it's accepted. And in some other countries, for some other indications or the same indications, it's also routine surgery. But most of the kind of neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders is not routine surgery. Mm. And we think that you at least need two clinical trials, randomized, blinded, if possible, from best from two different groups of researchers uh, that need to be published, both showing an acceptable risk-benefit ratio, at least comparable with other existing therapies. Of course, as I said, it's difficult to do the double-blind randomized controlled trial for lesion procedures. Mm. That's why I said only when it's possible. Uh, we, uh, this should be, of course, true for everything in medicine, but this is not true for everything in medicine. Mm. But in this delicate field of neurosurgery to change pathological behavior, we think, we being the neurosurgeons, the psychiatrists and the psychologists, we think that one should follow the highest possible level of evidence before you call something routine surgery. Sure. And just to be clear, none of the, the procedures for any of the disorders that you discuss in the paper, they, they don't have that level of, um, of evidence yet. I think that uh, we are gradually approaching that level for certain indications. Like for deep brain stimulation for OCD, I expect that in the near future we will reach that kind of evidence, but we have stated in the paper that at this moment, there's not, at the moment of publication yeah. <laughs> uh, of this uh, JNNP paper, uh, that is, there's not enough evidence uh, to really make it routine surgery. The neurosurgery for psychiatric disorders, as far as lesion procedures is performed, that exists already for a much longer time. Uh, there are much more publications, but the weak thing there is that 
you cannot have the double-blind randomized clinical trials. Sure. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's all very interesting. Do, do you have any final points? Is there anything else that you want to, to pull out of the paper? I, I think um, what uh, we can say is that these guidelines have been published in JNNP, that efforts are being made to translate uh, these guidelines in different languages, um, and we are halfway through at this moment, and that uh, that will be then linked to the paper in JNNP so people can read translations. And of course, everybody is welcome to change those guidelines if they think the guidelines should be changed. And I expect, of course, uh, that this will be changed in the future and that better guidelines will come. Great. Well, well thanks. Thanks very much, Bart, for um, discussing that with us. Oh, that was a pleasure. There's plenty more detail in the text version of the guidelines. So do go to jnmp.bmj.com for more. And just to remind you, the papers we feature are open access, so no excuses. And for more audio from us, have a listen to the special BNPA podcasts released alongside this one. They look at trend 2 variants in dementia, postictal psychosis and joint hypermobility and autonomic hyperactivity. That's everything for this month. Thanks for listening.